Hello and welcome. Let's talk books. I'm Robin Van Auken, and I'm interviewing writers about inspiration, creation, publication, and promotion of their books. Today is December 2nd, 2017, and it's episode number three. It's also a very special person's birthday today. I want to shout out to my best friend in the world, Janine Goodfellow. My guest today is Olivia Tagliaferri, founder of Iron Cutter Creative, a company that creates media that matters. Olivia is an author, a publisher, a producer, and a documentary filmmaker. Today we're talking about her novel, Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home. The book is based upon a series of interviews with Dennis Butts, a Vietnam veteran. Olivia met him at Walter Reed Hospital while she was working on a documentary film. She also conducted intense research into the governmental archives of the Vietnam, Gulf, and Iraq Wars. She's read numerous books, essays, and blogs in her search for authentic information. Learn about her struggle to complete her novel in the wake of her father's death. Her book is dedicated to him, Anthony Tagliaferri. You can learn more about Olivia and her book in the show notes at robinvanauken.com. Let's get started. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Van Auken, the wholehearted author, and I'm here today with Olivia Tagliaferra. Yes. Oh, great. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for coming today and being a part of our podcast here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. I have in my hands a copy of Olivia's book called Beyond the Wall, The Journey Home. So we're going to talk a little bit about this book and we're also going to talk about other projects that you're working in because you're creative. You're not a writer only. You also have this magnificent profession with Iron Cutter Media. Iron Cutter Creative. Creative. Uh-huh. Yep. So, can you tell me about it? Sure. Well, it's a full service advertising agency, but it started off as just a video production service company. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, not only am I a writer, I'm a documentary filmmaker. And then that parlayed into, you know, clients and, and friends asking me, hey, can you do a video for my, you know, it started off with a lot of nonprofit uh, work and then, you know, more and more corporate uh, you know, clients came on board and said, you know, we really want to tell the the story of our product or our purpose, you know, or even a person. How did you become interested in filmmaking? You know, I, well, I've always loved filmmaking. Um, you know, <clears throat> ever since I was a child, I just thought it was fascinating, you know, to make films. Um, and then more so, I was very, you know, uh, uh, engaged with the History Channel. So I loved documentary style films, you know, especially things, you know, that had historical value. Such as um, Ken Burns. Yeah, I love Ken Burns. I had the the uh, pleasure of meeting him several years ago in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. I have a picture of it on Facebook. It's he's he's an amazing man. And uh, actually, I was it was after uh, we were shown a preview of the I believe it was the Dust Bowl uh I forget what he called that one, but it was about the Dust Bowl. And just the breadth of his knowledge is amazing. You know what I mean? And how he's able to share anecdotes and stories and really just engage audiences. You know, and I'm talking about in the, the you know, the, the post show, you know, when he was engaged in, uh, you know, the, the director's discussion and question and answers. It was just amazing. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a really neat experience to be able to meet him backstage afterward. Well, I can see where something like that rubbed off on you because I attended a a sneak peek at one of your premieres, your videos, um, the documentary. It's Power of One. It's the Power of One. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Power of One. And when that concluded, you actually were up there on the stage for quite a while talking to people, explaining the background of your video and mm-hmm. your interviews and everything. And we were so impressed with how passionate and educated you were about your topic. Thank you. So we're looking forward to that documentary. How is that going for you? You know, Robin, that one is uh, that one is start and stop. Uh, you know, and sometimes I actually thought it was because of me. You know, it's a it's a difficult topic. It's about suicide prevention. Um, you know, I'm trying to focus on the more uplifting aspect of, you know, people and programs that are really helping prevent suicide in America. But at the same time, it's dealing with a very difficult, very heavy issue. You know, so uh, one of the beautiful things, and I say this in an almost like a morbid way, um, not morbid, but, you know, uh, um, 
almost like a counterintuitive way is that it made me confront a lot of things in my own personal life and in my own family, you know, dynamic, uh, you know, when you're really studying, uh, an issue such, such as suicide, you know, it, it truly, it doesn't, doesn't go untouched, you know, not many families, not many people, uh, you know, are untouched by it. So, uh, there was a lot, uh, you know, that it brought up for me personally, um, and then on the professional sense, I don't know if it's because it's a difficult uh, or kind of like a silent topic that's awkward um, or was traditionally taboo, but it's been very difficult on the fundraising side. You know, people do give, but they don't give as much as they would as if it was for a different project uh, based on my my previous experience. So, um, you know, I've been uh, producing it and capturing the stories as I can. You know, I've uh, put in a lot of my own resources to be able to get it to the point where it's at. Um, but at this point, you know, we truly do need uh, outside support to to be able to to make it, you know, complete. Your film background mm-hmm. led you to be at Walter Reed Hospital. Mm-hmm. And and when was this? About 10 years ago? 15 years ago? It was uh, 2003. So, uh, you know, when I graduated college, I, I, you know, had a history background. Um, you know, that was my, my major. Um, I moved to D.C. And for the first four to five years that I was there, I was actually in the technology industry. But I, I, and I did very well, but I wasn't happy. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, that quandary of I'm good at what I do, but it doesn't make me happy. So um, I knew as a creative you know, person, I, I wanted to be a creative professional. And so, uh, I switched gears and I started working for a video production company. Uh, and they originally wanted me to have, you know, my sales hat on and be an account manager, basically going out and getting new accounts and new clients. And so I reached out to a a very good friend of mine who had worked with at my, uh, you know, my prior company and, uh, I said, Mark, you know, I know that you've, you're building up your own production company. You've done a lot of work, you know, for the USO uh, as well as many other companies down in, in nonprofits in the area at the time, you know, um, I'm here with a new, new group and they're really talented. I think that we could really offer you something, you know, would you give us a shot? And, uh, you know, he said, well, if you can match the price of so-and-so, yeah. And of course, you know, when I went back and told the team, they're like, what? And I said, listen, I said, you know, it's, it's quantity, you know, if we can get in, you know, and, and show them what we've got, you know, this is, uh, this is going to make sense in the long run. But anyway, so um, he said, all right, you know, and, and came back and we said we could do that. He said, I need you to be at Walter Reed Medical Center next Friday. You know, told me it was going to be a three person ENG crew, this, that, the other thing. You know, now, Robin, I had no idea what he was talking about, like zero. <laughs> you know, I'm writing down these, you know, notes furiously and like pretending that I know his jargon. Meanwhile, you know, because I don't want to reveal that I don't know. Right. So I'm like Googling up and I'm like calling people and I'm like, what is an ENG and what's this and what's that? You know, whatever. Uh, and that actually kind of plays into the story because I was so worried and consumed about the technical aspects of my very first assignment. Oh, and in the the meantime, uh, one of the producers at the company left. So not only did I bring the account on, then I had to be the producer, i.e. I had to go and I had to wrangle, you know, all the people and all the equipment and I had to go and and oversee, you know, this production uh, on behalf of the other production team for the USO Metro at Walter Reed. So it was like immersion, like experience, like you can't believe but <clears throat> so I was really consumed with, you know, uh, the logis- the logistics, the technical things, you know, the right equipment, telling people that, you know, plus we had to go through security because at the time Walter Reed was at, it was an army medical center. So it's, right. it's an army base. Um, I was not emotionally or mentally prepared to walk into that facility. And when I did, it was life changing. It was life changing. It was August of 2003. Uh, so it was about four months after the war had started. And it was at that point, we knew it was no longer shock and awe. You know, it wasn't going to be a redo of, of the first Gulf War that looked like a video game on CNN, right. you know. Um, and at that point, I believe the hospital was already operating at 92 or 93 percent capacity. You know, so there was a lot of wounded, a lot of maimed soldiers, uh, a lot of burned uh, soldiers. There was also... Um, a lot of amputations, a lot of amputees, you know, because uh, it was almost like guerrilla style warfare with the improvised uh, explosive devices, which, you know, they call IEDs. Right. Um, for me, after that day, I could not read the news. You know, like you always see the chirons going across the news scroll, you know, of like, you know, 
uh, three people, KIA or wounded and IED attack, you know, whatever. For me, I knew what that looked like. And I couldn't read the news the same way or hear the news the same way. But anyways, I knew at that, that moment and, you know, we were, the purpose of the USO shoot was that we were supposed to go to videotape celebrities that were visiting the war wounded to boost their morale. Right. You know, it was um, the country music group Alabama. It was, gosh, I can't think of his name. I can see his face. Another country music star, which is such Tim a McGraw? nice man. No, but he has been there. Randy Travis. Okay. Randy Travis. Um, he was, it was, it was those two groups that day. But anyways, um, we're in that time period that we were there because we were there a couple times. Anyways, um, it was just, you know, the general uh, at the time uh, was very attuned to, you know, visiting all of the patients, knew their names, you know, um, seeing the caregivers provide that level of care and service. And then also the families, you know what I mean? Like you can't imagine, you know, trying to love your, you know, your wounded loved one to, 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 you know what I mean? It was just, anyways, it was a very emotional and very overwhelming experience as a human being. You know what I mean? And that's what I think, you know, you can't unsee what you've seen. You can't unhear what you've hear, heard. You can't unexperience thing that, things that you've experienced. That's true for anybody. You know, you carry it forward. You carry it with you. But anyways, I knew that day that I wanted to be able to contribute something into their healing process and help them. You know, they, they, um, I, I that's, that was my intention that was set that day. You know, that I was going to look for an opportunity, whatever I could do, at whatever level I could do, you know, to help them heal. Okay, and this led to your imagination thinking up this story. How well, did this story come about, this book? Yeah, well, there was another integral person and another, and another integral, um, uh, you know, experience, which was, so three months, not even a full three months after uh, being at Walter Reed, I was invited to another business meeting, and there was a gentleman uh, who, his name was Dennis. Anyways, he was, um, wanting to do videos for one of his startup companies. And I remember we were in a, um, the cafeteria of the old Xerox building out in like Lansdowne, Virginia. It was really corporate looking, you know, like everything was gray, gray walls, gray halls, you know, gray desks, gray, everything. Even the cafeteria was gray. You're like, Oh my God, get me out of here. Right. But anyways, uh, we were, we were in this group of, of, I think it was about seven or eight of us, and we were at a round table. So we're back yeah. to Dennis. Dennis wanted videos. So yeah, so he wanted videos for uh, for his company, and um, you know, I more we more or less checked out of the conversation. And at that point, everybody was just kind of eating their lunch. Um, but my colleague, who actually was the owner of this production company I worked for. Uh, said, you know, to Dennis, all these years I've known you, I had no idea that you were old enough to be in Vietnam, let alone have three purple hearts. He meant it as a compliment, like, hey, buddy, you look great for your age type of thing, you know, whatever. And this man, you know, you could totally tell he was not ready for the word Vietnam. It just, it there was an immediate trigger. There was almost like a contortion on his face and everybody, he just fell silent and so did everybody else. You know, and he said, uh, I was, it was 1967. I was there for nine months. I was 19 years old. And in that nine month period of time, I lost many of my best friends and every former sense of self I ever had. And I mean, it's like, you know, he just basically boom. lowered the boom. Exactly. There was complete silence at the table. And not only that, like everybody was like completely motionless. And I remember in my mind thinking nine months, that's the same amount of time it takes, you know, and all of a sudden I could hear myself speaking. I'm like, Who's talking? Because I didn't give myself permission to talk, you know. But I said, sir, I have no idea what it was like to be in war. I said, I can't imagine what it was, it, you know, you must have, you know, experienced. I said, but, you know, I'm struck by the parallel of nine months. That's the same amount of time it takes a woman to give birth to a child. I said, I can only imagine that's what it felt like being in the womb of war. And he just, you know, swiveled his head to me and like we locked eyes. And he said, that's exactly what it was like. Except this time I wasn't born with my innocence. I was born without it. And uh, a couple days later, that was a Thursday. And on a Saturday, I received a call. In fact, you know, it was funny because I didn't recognize the number. I usually don't pick up numbers that I don't know. But something, you know, said, get this number, you know, take this to call. And I did. And it was Dennis. And he said, I can't stop thinking about what you said, you know, uh, about being in the womb of war. 
And, uh, and I also had prefaced after, you know, speaking, I said, it's just that I, I said, I'm a writer. And uh, if I were to ever tell a story or write a story about what you just shared, I said, <clears throat> I wouldn't want to talk about just the physical experience of going to war. I would want to know what it's like from the emotional and the spiritual and the psychological aspect as well. You know, I said, you know, every, we've already had the hero of all hero stories. We already have the battle of all battle stories. I want to know what it's like for an 18 or 19 year old kid to become a warrior and what it's like for a warrior to come home from war. And so anyways, so when he called on Saturday, he's like, I can't stop thinking about what you said. And um, I just found out my son, who's 17 years old, uh, wants to join the Marines like me when he graduates high school. He said he has no idea who I am or why I am the way I am. And I want him to know, you know, and he said, I, I and, and, you know, so anyways, so can you meet? You know, he said, I really like the the idea that you had for talking about, you know, uh, the other aspects of, of, you know, a story that's not been told. And so anyway, so we met that next day for about five hours. And then we met every single weekend after that for, gosh, that would have been late October, early November. We met until February. So, and he talked to you, told you stories about uh, his oh, experience. Gosh. Exactly. You know. Uh, but at the same time, you were doing a lot of research. You Absolutely. Doing a, yeah. A, a, an immense amount of research. Um, you were on the line mm -hmm. reading blogs, I understand. Absolutely. Um, right? mm -hmm. Because when I read your book, um, I come from a military background. Mm -hmm. my, I, I have, um, my father was a Marine. Oh, wow. My brothers were in uh, the service. My one brother was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And they my call son, those Papa Smoke. <laughs> my son is, um, he has just recently left um, the Army. Oh, wow. He was a Special Forces soldier, mm -hmm. and he's still working with the um, military as a contractor okay. to help them. So he's still deployed. Sure. Every three months, he's gone wow. uh, into the danger zone. So oh. I understand completely what you're saying about not reading the news, not watching the news. Um, about 10 years ago, when he first deployed, maybe mm. a little bit longer, he told me, don't read the news. And mm. so I haven't since then. I'm completely in the dark. And wow. um, the only time I really know that something bad has happened is I will get a message out of the blue from my son and in the middle of Afghanistan saying, I'm fine. Everybody's great. We'll love you. And I'll go, uh-oh. And then I'll ask my husband, I said, what yeah. happened? What? Yeah. And he'll yeah. tell me. Sure. But when I read through your book, I mean, having not been in the military myself, mm. but my sister was, mm -hmm. my brothers were, my, my father was, you know, my husband, he was in the military too. And then my son, um, you know, I recognized the language. This is, this is a difficult language to speak if you haven't been in the military. Yeah. And yeah. you got this. There were literally about 20 books that I read, uh, you know, from uh, that Vietnam era time frame and or veterans, Vietnam veterans that wrote about their experience afterwards, you know, Fields of Fire. I literally have a box of, you know, um, I don't even know how to describe what they look like, but they're like really, they're, they're war stories, they're war books. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the, the memoirs or the biography. So anyways, um, I literally read about 20 of them. And then also I did a lot of work with a, a friend uh, whom I met later through Dennis, uh, John, John Weidlich, who operated a uh, military museum of sorts, not, not a formal museum, but he was just a collector. Right. And so, uh, oh God, this is a funny story. <clears throat> Towards the end of my writing, when I was really just like, kind of like fine tuned. And then also I, I, you know, researched Department of Defense Archives, Department of State Archives to make sure of the historical accurate, right. accuracy. But anyways, on the tactical accuracy of like, you know, the, what I was describing as, you know, their equipment and their gear and stuff like that. So yes. I called John and I said, you know, I, what, 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 are, you know, what are the vests? What do they look like? What do they feel like? You know, how heavy are they? You know, what are they made of? <clears throat> Grenades of that type. Like, so, exactly. so, so anyways, he said, Oh, I have all that. I have all that, Olivia. Let's go make my over to the army Navy store. Well, no, I know <laughs> army, well, he, Navy he was in Altoona uh, area and I was in DC, but I was visiting my mom uh, up in Pennsylvania. So anyways, actually, no, I take that back. Cause at that point I lived um, I, so the, 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 the origin of the story is that I started working on it in DC as a screenplay. Then I and realized. It does read like that. And, when, yeah. When I'm reading yeah. the book, I, is extremely visual. I can yeah. see this as a movie. So it was, it was originally as a screenplay that actually just focused on Dennis's story. Um, and then 
about nine months after that, it was interesting because I was working with a, um, a script doctor. He said, this is a great first script and blah, blah, blah. Well, he was the one who said, you know, I, I need to see more, you know, oomph in the battle of, and, and we need to have this at the beginning. And then this needs to happen. And I said, that's already been done. That's, that's Hamburger Hill. That's Rumba. Exactly. That's already been done. I, I, you know, I said, I'm trying to, and I, you know, as I described to you, what the intention was of the story that I wanted to tell from the angle I wanted to tell. He said, if you want to talk about all that or write about all that, you need to write a book. Yes. And I remember being so angry at the time. And also, he said, otherwise, it's just a garden variety Vietnam story. And boy, that made me mad. I said, there's no such thing as that. You know, I said, by the way, there's no such thing as heroes. And there's no such thing as battle of all battles. I said, there's basically somebody shooting at you. And you don't want to die. And you don't want your friends to die. You don't know that you're being a hero. You're just doing what you were told to do and taught to do. I said, and you don't know it was a battle of all battles. You just know that you want it to end. And you're doing whatever you can to make it end. And then you find out afterwards what the significance of it was. But you don't give a shit when it's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, and he's like sitting back. I mean, I literally had this script and flung it against the wall. I was so angry and I rate with this man but it was funny it took me about two days to be like you know I should probably just write this into a book at that time there was a friend of mine who you know knew I was writing you know this story said Olivia you need to turn on the news there's a story I don't know if it was 60 minutes or 2020 about uh, Vietnam veterans who are part of a mentor program going over to Walter Reed to help you know the younger generation yes. with their recovery and their healing process and all of a sudden it was like this aha moment because I, you know, realized that I could tell that story given my background and my experience, not just with, you know, having that sacred uh, space with, with, with Dennis and hearing his stories, but also being at Walter Reed, you know, and yeah. seeing, you know, what that looked like from all of the levels, not just the person who was wounded, but, you know, the family member, the caregiver, you know, just the, the visitor, you know, what, and. And then, so anyways, um, that's when it dawned on me that I was going to write this as a book, as historical fiction, about two veterans. And you created the character Andy at that yes. time. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So tell me, you are, you, you mentioned that this Andy character is an amalgamation of people that you know, but it's also you. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because I wanted to share some of the stories that Dennis shared with me, with other people in a way that would make it feel and seem like they were hearing it the way I heard it too. You know, so uh, there was an aspect of me kind of like being that character, hearing his stories, you know, as well as the fact that, you know, to build and flesh out that character, you know, he had to be a person who could intuit pain or could feel empathetically what pain felt like. And at the time I had just lost my father. My father had died uh, of cancer in early uh, June of 2005. And um, it was interesting because I had actually started writing the novel or transcribing it from a play into a novel that January. So, you know, five months into this process, I lost my father very suddenly. Like he was diagnosed in May and died 33 days later from pancreatic and cancer. And this is what happens with Andy's father, right? In and so I was able to incorporate that experience of, you know, Andy losing his father and being able to sense a person in pain uh, when Dennis first came to meet with him. You know, uh, they didn't have an immediate bond. It wasn't an immediate thing. You know, uh, it was something that, that was cultivated over time. So, uh, and then the other, just, just some personal stories, you know, of uh, his growing up and his, you know, his uh, experiences, um, you know, did come from my background. But then also there were uh, experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, exactly. you know, that, um, you know, just came to life through him. Um, you know, back in those days, IAVA was a blog that people were writing in not only from, you know, the field, but then after the fact, and now it's, it's become a, um, an advocacy group, you know, they don't even have a blog anymore. Uh, but it used to be an, a, a blog, you know, where people could just share their stories and their, their everything. And so I wanted to be able to keep just as much as I did all that research of the Vietnam, you know, era veteran, I needed to do my research of, exactly. you know, what are these guys and girls feeling, hearing, thinking, seeing, what are the terminology that they're using, you know, like the sandbox, you know, things like that. We all know more about it now, but back then, you know, it was, um, it was more close knit. You know, there weren't many stories about Iraq and Afghanistan at that point. And so anyways, yeah, that's how it came to be. And now I 
have a copy of your book, but I didn't buy this book. You gave this book away. Can you mm -hmm. tell me about that um, and why you're giving away this book to so many people? Well, they're, they're not, I mean, they are being given, but they're not being given. Like, so there's been companies and exactly. organizations, you know, that have loved this book so much because there is a definite healing aspect to the book. You know, there's a real catharsis that happens for both of the characters, um, as well as I think for readers too, you know, uh, that, that, you know, when you're experiencing, you know, the transformation of pain into healing. And so, uh, you know, in wanting to get it to as many people as possible, you know, I talked to different companies and different, you know, organizations and said, hey, would you sponsor, you know, this book? And so, you know, people have bought anywhere from, you know, one to two to three to, you know, um, to give away. Yeah. To several boxes, right. you know, that I sign, I personalize and, you know, we gift them to military families exactly. such as yourself. You know, we gift them to veterans. Uh, we ship them overseas. We ship them. I mean, they are, this book has been shipped almost everywhere that I can think of. I, I just got a request um, on Monday when I was at the um, uh, event in Camp Hill with a veteran and said, you know, would you send my son a book? I said, absolutely. Wonderful. So, it's, it is an enjoyable book. It's, it's a heartbreaking book uh, at the same time. Can you tell me a little bit about the process when you were writing it? It was difficult. It was very difficult because you were excited at first you were excited by this idea yeah. as a screenplay. Yeah. And then you were angry when it wasn't going to be a screenplay. Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest with you, you know, screenplays are actually easier to write than books because you can literally kind of go in the surface level. And when you need to get emotional, you do it through language. You can do it through a little bit of scene creation, but you know, in a book you're going down into the depths of the human experience and, Every, you know what I mean? Like you're touching all the crevices, you're going into the bowels, so to speak, you know? And, um, and so I had to put on a completely different aspect, you know, uh, a, a, which was the aspect I've always wanted. You know what I mean? I always wanted to write a novel. I always wanted okay. to, to, to write books ever since I was seven years old. So, um, it was very daunting, but at the same time, it just drew me in. Um, and because I did have the 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 script, I was able to cut out pieces of it that I could use as some of my like mile markers, so to speak, not even milestones, but just like, you know, like, okay, this is going to happen here. This is going to happen here. And then developing Andy's story, which was completely new, right. you know, um, and then like, you know, his character arc. Um, you know, I didn't have your, your beautiful whiteboard. I basically <laughs> went to Staples and bought, um, those little, you know, like sticky notepads post thing notes. or post yes. notes. Yeah. That's the way you're supposed to do yeah. it. And I had, uh, index cards in between those two things, you know, I would, and I just had a regular like wall that I would just tape up on the wall and, you know, move things around as they were, as they were going. But, you know, the, 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 the process of writing was, was somewhat painful at times because, you know, obviously you're dealing with war and death and destruction. And part of the book even deals with like destruction of the human emotion. You know what I mean? Um, there were people that were in, you know, in Vietnam, you know, they were not just, you know, fighting for each other, but then, you know, it, it, or, or there was not just the loss of life. There was almost, and the loss of limb, there was the loss of emotion. There was the loss of um, their connection with humanity. That thousand yard stare. Yeah. 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 The development. Yeah. That type. But, uh, the two chapters that were the hardest for me to write, um, you know, was the, the demise of Lily and, um, and Harry. And I had to go to the Vietnam wall, um, that morning. I, I just, I had, um, insomnia all night, could not write it. I was like, it was like the, you know, tandem of writer's block and insomnia. I was like, Oh my God, like, you know, make this. So I went the next morning to the wall and I took my paper and I etched names, you know, and I put them back on my desk. And I said, if these guys could go through what they went through, I can go through this too and write about it. Ooh. So that, that is severe motivation. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take you to write this book? And, and what was your process? How did you sit down and make time for it while you're still working, creating your own company. Well, you know, I actually took time off from work uh, after my father passed and during his passing because I was helping my mom. And about two months after my father died, my maternal grandmother, who had been living with my parents while she was in recovery for cancer, 
uh, she was diagnosed that it had come back and it was going to be terminal. So I remember telling my mom, you're not going to do this by yourself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to move back to DC yet. I'll stay home and I'll, I'll help you. So I was almost kind of in a caregiver role, um, where I was doing very, very little work. I had a few clients in DC that I, you know, could do remote work for, you know, website writing and, uh, flyers and, you know, just kind of like a little bit of side things here and there, but I was not in the process of building the company at all. In fact, I don't even think it, I forget if it formally existed at that point, but I was just doing a little bit of freelance work. Um, and I was able to write, um, you know, it was August that I was like, my dad died in June. It was August that I was able to start writing again. And then from that August to the following March, I wrote the book. So you set yourself up in a office? Yep. Yeah, it used and to be my old went room. Went to work every day. Yes, and just sat there and waited for the words to come. And- you know what the key thing was? And I said to my mom, I said, "Mom, I need a separate computer for writing." She said, "What do you mean? You have a you have your laptop?" I said, "No, my laptop has the internet on it." And mm-hmm. even then, like the the internet can be that siren song, you know, that pulls you out, you know, right. off course and God knows where. But anyways. Um, I needed it to research. You know, like I said, I was heavily researching, you know, the historical aspects of not only the Vietnam War, but also the Iraq War. So, you know, they weren't archived yet. That wasn't archived yet, but the Vietnam era things were archived. Um, you know, so I was deep in the bowels of the government's, you know, archives, like, you know, figuring out where this and that, the other thing were. And, um, you know, the mindset of what the politicians were that were making the decisions about what was going on in Vietnam at that time. And, you know, that was very, very interesting. And, um, but anyways, um, so I had a whole separate computer. It wasn't, it was like an old school, like a beast, like, you know what I mean? Like a dinosaur of a computer. It didn't have anything on it except for word. That was it. And that's all I needed. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I wrote the book. That is some discipline. Yeah. Now, what year was this published? 2007. So about 10 years ago. And it was published by your company. So I set up a company, you know, I'll be quite honest with you, Robin, that was a misstep. I went, there was a company in the South that wanted to publish this book and I wish I would have let them. At the time I thought, boy, you know, royalty, that's not very good royalty. That's not very much money. This took me all told, you know, between writing the, the script and then the research and in the book, it was almost three years, two and a half, almost three years. Sure. Yeah. So anyway, so, you know, I just thought, well, I can do that. You, you know, did. you invested in yourself yeah. with this book. Now, why do you think that you should have let another publisher, a small publisher in the South? Yeah, I wish I would have. And I'll tell you why, because putting, being the publisher took away from time being the author. And I didn't have the time to, to write more or to write more books. Um, you know, being the publisher made me go into sales and marketing mode. Right. And also then I was in the building phase of bringing other authors' books on. So it didn't look like it was just like a self, you know, vanity style press. It was right. a real, um, what did I call it? I forget. I was like, it's not a vanity press. It's a sanity press, you know. <laughs> but I was really also um, motivated to publish works of social value. Right. You know, things that were, you know, difficult to discuss or just had a lot of meaning that could really help a lot of people. People. And so I had at uh, 1.9 different titles. They just didn't do well. You know what I mean? But I also was also very young and I didn't quite know how to market books at that time. I didn't. And then also I would never, even though I worked very, very, very hard, I think there was always a part of me that wanted to, to, to save a little portion of myself for the writing. You know what I mean? Like, yes. so like some people like are all in, they're like, okay, this is my idea. I'm all in. I was... in, but there was a part of me that was like, I don't know if I want to be all in because I want to be writing. I want to be the writer. I want to be the author. So there was a conflict, uh, you know, uh, when I became the publisher that it took away from me being the author. Okay. So I've been both. I've worked Mm -hmm. with traditional publishers and I've been an independent publisher um, of my own novels. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my experience, Yes, it's very nice to have somebody else take care of the layout, somebody else take care of the production of the book and putting the book in bookstores. But, and this is my famous quote, the first publisher we worked with, uh, Penn State University Press, um, wonderful editor, he told me, Robin, a book has a shelf life of a tomato. (gasps) 
Wow. The Shelf Life of a Tomato. Now, your book printed in 2009. Here yeah. it is, nine, almost nine years later. Eight yeah. years, get ready to be yeah. nine. Does this look like a tomato to you? No. Well, and this Who is kept the, it fresh. This is the second edition, too. Exactly. Yeah. So, but you know, and I don't know if it's because of the book or the production itself. I think, sadly, it's because this is an evergreen issue. We're still at war. Yes, we are. We're still at war. But it's also because of the energy that you put into your book. Thank you. Nobody is going to take as good care of your book as you are. Nobody's going to look at it and keep it fresh. Thank you. Except for you. So, I mean, I know it's a tough road. I, I, I'm enduring yeah. it myself. I mean, I, like I yeah. said, behind me on the mm-hmm. wall is a whiteboard with a plot of a book that I have been ignoring for like two or three years. Yeah. So what are you working on right now that's oh, keeping you in the yeah. ignore phase? Yeah. Is there a book that yeah. you want to write? Oh, yeah. And the, and the main character's name is George. And George has been screaming at me for a long, long time saying, why aren't you writing me? And uh, to be honest with you, though, I did pick George back up. It, it's a book called The 10K Campaign. And, oh, God, I thought of it back in 2004, five era. But I didn't start writing it until 2008. Okay. And then I, in 2000, I put it away for, there was just, uh, you know, I didn't have time. You know what I mean? I, I, but anyways, I picked it back up in 2013 and got it to the one third of the way done point. So it's one third of the book is, is done. And, uh, just recently I picked it back up, uh, because George has been screaming at me to, to, to get him finished. Um, and I've uh, written a few more chapters in the last few months. And Wonderful. So I'm trying to create the space in my schedule because that's really what it takes. It's like the discipline of creating your schedule and freeing your schedule, not answering the phone, not answering your email, not answering your text, not doing anything, just like suctioning and sectioning that time out to be able to gift and to give that time. But anyways, um, it's about a farmer in Iowa who is so disgusted with the amount of money in political campaigns that is a special presidential campaigns. I mean, I think it was like what a billion dollars, you know, and here we have like, yeah, it's like, you know, deficits and like, it's very obscene. Like you think about like all the money that's going into politics for what, you know, for the one guy to like, you know, and or gal to fling mud at the other. And like, it's like, Oh my God, stop it. And plus we're all getting sick from it. You know, like literally sick with, with the hatred of one. Anyways. So he's just, at his wit's end with it. So he writes this, you know, screed, you know, um, actually, but, but he, he, he's cheap, very cheeky about it. He writes it, uh, as, uh, from the, from the, uh, perspective of an 84 year old woman who can't swallow her porridge anymore because she's so, you know, upset about, you know, all this money that's going into politics and being wasted. And, you know, anyways, so she signs it off or he signs it off as conscious do good which is the great, 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 great granddaughter of Silence Do Good, which was the pen name of Benjamin Franklin, you know, when he was railing against this lack of separation of church and state, you know, back in, back in the day. And, uh, and he had to do it then because, you know, his brother who has a publisher of the newspaper had been jailed for not, you know, hiding himself and writing things that were, you know, uh, inflammatory or, you know, perceived as inflammatory against the church. So anyway, so he, he hid himself behind, you know, the skirt, so to speak, of an elderly woman. And uh, I just thought it was brilliant. I mean, it was like the beginning of satire. You know, he was the godfather, the, the founding father of satire, as well as, you know, the our country. But anyways, so, um, you know, I signed off the this this letter as Conscious Do Good, and it goes viral, you know, and all of a sudden it finds its way to, you know, from friends and family and friends and family to an editor at the New York Times who thinks it's funny. And publishes it as an op-ed, you know, and then all of a sudden the radio personalities of the world say, you know, find out this person and get them on the radio and let's, you know, get them on air. And so you have, you know, the, the radio personality du jour, you know, who's kind of like, you know, the, the, the big, you know. I don't want to say pompous, but like, you know, like that puffery yes, that a lot of them kind of take on that air. So they get this uh, and and they find out, you know, that Conscious Do Good is, is really, you know, the guy named George Davison from a farm in Iowa. And so they get him on the phone and they basically, you know, want to hear his philosophy of how. Oh, oh, oh. And the whole bottom line of his email was that with today's technology, you could theoretically run a whole campaign on a budget of ten thousand right. dollars. You know, you have everything available to you that to be able to, to communicate with the masses, they don't really have to pay for anymore. You know what I mean? Um, there's just, you know, 
some foundational technology that you have to have that you could reach out to the masses. So anyways, uh, he and he challenges the presidential candidates to run a campaign on $10,000. Well, when they get them on the phone and they get them on the air, you know, they say, George, since you know how to do this or you think you know how to, why don't you show us how it's done? You know, and uh, challenge him, challenge him. And so he accepted his own challenge. And so, you know, just as they're getting off the phone, they're like, wait, 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 you know, we had to figure out who we're going to be. Our next presidential candidate is George, you know, what's your middle name, by the way? And that's when he shares it's Orwell. So (laughs) George Orwell Davidson, a.k.a. God, is running for president. And it just, you know, it goes from there. I have actually heard this snippet before. You've been talking about this book, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait to read it. I've been talking about this book since I was a bartender in Colorado <laughs> while I was writing Beyond the Wall. Like, yes. I mean, it's been it's been in my mind and in my heart for so, so long. And um, part of me is like, boy, should I have that out by now? Boy, that would have really been... <laughs> you know, present and, and not only that, because of, you know, the aspect that we have where we put people like almost like on a, a, like think of certain people as deities, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, and, and, uh, it's just, it's really bizarre what we're doing in in our current climate. So anyways, um, but at the same time, I wonder, well, maybe right now is the very perfect time to finish it and publish it and share it with the world. So most definitely, I think so. Most definitely. (laughs) So let me ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Is there a book you're never going to write? Okay. I have um, been introducing at the end of each mm-hmm. podcast the concept that, you know, we, we all have this muse that we mm-hmm. listen to or we don't listen to. All books um, are out here and all stories mm-hmm. should be told, but not all stories should be books. Sometimes you have to just let a story go. Yeah. Now, you're not going to let... G-O-D go. That 10K no. campaign book is going to be written. But is there yeah. a book that you toyed with over the years, you thought about, and you're ready to just release it? Just tell the quick story and let it go so that it doesn't... Just die on the vine. I know. Doesn't die unheard. Yeah. There is a story, again, around the same period of time. I must have just been on fire with inspiration at that point. Um, I did start... Actually, I started writing when I was still at my first company, the technology company. Uh, I mapped it out. I started writing it. I didn't like it. I didn't like my writing then, you know, um, I think I put too much pressure or I, I don't know. I just did, or maybe I didn't know at that point how to tap in, you know, and channel in, you know, cause writing for, for me and I'm sure for you too is, you know, yes, it's part of an ins- inspirational experience, but it's also part of an intuitive experience where you really have to channel for lack of a better word into that time and that place and that person that you're describing and like to, to really bring it, you know, to life. Um, so now that you said that, yeah, there's, there's a story that it probably should just be told in some way or form just so that it feels honored. That's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So are you going to tell us a quick snippet about this story? Well, are you ready to let it go? Well, and this is kind of funny, not funny, but, um, It was about a man who had a very tumultuous relationship with his father, uh, hadn't spoken to his father in years and receives a phone call from his mother that his father is dying of cancer, which is very ironic now because, you know, my, my dad died of cancer, although I had a great relationship with my dad. But, uh, so this, uh, this had no, you know, biographical, uh, reflections, so to speak. Um, but I'm sure all stories kind of do in some way you can bring out forth a little bit of your, your personality into it. But, um, so it's about a man with a tumultuous relationship with his father and, um, and his, his, and he's, uh, he's Jewish, but his father is like Orthodox Jewish and he's not, you know, he's not even practicing at that point. Uh, but anyways, he's also a down on his luck writer. He saw very early success, um, like literally like 23, 24 published a bestseller, kind of like out of the blue type of thing. And now we see him where he's in his thirties and the last two or three books have been duds. In fact, he just got letters, you know, that his the pitch for his new books aren't even being accepted. You know, he's just being declined. And <clears throat> he's taking it personally because his father was a prolific writer and also was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, again, this is all fictional. But anyways, uh, who his claim to fame was that he followed uh, the Israeli army in the 1967 
uh, what was it? The six day war, right. um, you know, and embedded and, you know, not only wrote, but also took pictures. And so anyways, he became kind of like this preeminent storyteller from that era and, uh, and won the Pulitzer. But anyway, so they always thought, you know, Sonny was riding on the coattails of his dad. And that was basically the only way that he, you know, had the early acclaim. And ever since then, he was trying to prove himself in his own right and just seemed to fail. And so there was a lot of intensity in their relationship and in their dynamic. And so we see them at the point where there's uh, trying to have some sort of a reconnection, you know, at the bequest of her of the mother who's, you know, um, trying to repair the relationship before the father dies. And so it's their walk um, through, you know, pain of... Um, Internal pains and, and, and internal hurts, you know, and internal wounds. Um, and also then, you know, this gentleman is dating a woman uh, uh, who's from Syria. And, you know, the father is not happy about that and is not accepting of that. And so anyway, so there's just a lot of dynamic issues, you know, that they work through. And uh, but again, that book is also a book about healing. I can see it. Yeah, I may, see it. and I'm maybe excited. it's not maybe it's not a book. Maybe it's a short story. Maybe it's maybe, a, it. maybe it's just a little ditty. I don't know. Why not? Why not? Yeah. But sometimes if you just let a story go, the muse mm-hmm. may come back to you. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm ready to let a couple of my stories go. I've got so many stories that I've said I need to write, but I have to write and write them in chronological order. Yes. Why do we impose these rules know. upon ourselves? Because I'd love to throw this one away and pull out. Another before it's yeah. gone. Maybe you should. Maybe I should. I, but take you know a, pic- what? Take a picture like, of it, though. I have. I have. I've got lots of photos of yeah. different things that I've... Yeah. Yeah. Little snapshots of whiteboards of ideas. And just come back to it. Well, you know, the other thing is, too, is like I there, there's competing space in my brain between, you know, power of one... Uh, 10K campaign, and then also my client work, you know, so exactly. Iron Cutter Creative has really been taking off. And then I have another business, a side business, you know, uh, where I operate uh, Tags Takeout yes. two days a month, one at uh, the shop with Chef Ocean Ann House and the second with UPMC. And um, now Tags was your family's restaurant and it was a, a very revered restaurant. Yeah. Here. I remember yeah. when we first moved to Williamsport, Tags was open and we went to dinner there and I went, oh, my God, <laughs> this is the best spaghetti sauce I've ever had in yeah. my life. Yeah. You know, and it, it all came from my grandmother's side of the family. You know, they emigrated from Italy in the 1920s or actually I think the 19 teens, late, late 19 teens, uh, Neapolitan style you know, uh, oh my God, it's so good. I just made a batch last night because I'm having my cousins over for dinner tonight. But anyways, um, yeah, so, so, you know, and I offer that and I, I, on one hand I enjoy it because the community enjoys it so yes, much. They do. Um, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, are you going to start a restaurant? When, when are you going to do a restaurant? I'm like, I'm not going to do a restaurant. I love the idea that you do it on your terms. Imagine opening up a restaurant because everybody asked you to, and then you sit there six days a week. With empty chairs waiting for that one day of the week when everybody shows up. Yeah. No, no. I do it twice a month and I'm happy with that. And I I quite frankly can't, you know, do that more because of all the other, you know, projects that I've got going on. So, but, but to that point I was saying is, is like creating the space and the time for my own independent projects has really been a challenge. Um, uh, there's times where I feel really balanced and I feel like in front of my schedule where it's like, I'm in command of the schedule. I'm going to create the time here and I'm going to not book any. And lately I've had so I lately I feel quite, I don't know if it's overwhelmed, but I feel like I'm just responding to my schedule. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yes. Like where it's like, I'm riding the waves and riding the crest and I can't wait till Friday. And then maybe on the weekend I'll have a little bit of time to get ahead of it and I can schedule again. But then I realize that I actually need to like rest and, like recover and yeah. also spend time with family and friends. You know? It is difficult. It is difficult to get a handle on it. And that's yeah. why I'm actually reading this book, The Power of Habit. Um, when when you first came in, you mentioned that you love that book because I too yeah. am responding. I am tired of being a reactionary. How do you get a handle? And I'm looking at different habits that I have to try to 
to create a new habit yeah. that will let me spend more time writing. Yes. Instead of avoiding writing. Exactly. Or procrastinating. You oh, know what yes. I mean? Yeah. I have turned procrastination into a habit. I did too. And it was yeah. a bad habit. And for me, it was the internet, reading the news on the internet. Tiny house videos on the internet. That's where I'm You're at right so now. Yeah, I know it's so yeah. funny because my, you know, my husband and I just bought a house in Florida yeah. uh, that we're looking to move into eventually. Um, and just the living room alone, six tiny houses can fit in it. It's got like 20 story, 20, wow. 20 foot high ceilings yeah. and it's a massive open floor. Oh, wow. But that's the kind of mentality my husband and I have. Uh, like he was in his office building shelves for more storage space while I was in my office watching a documentary about minimalism. And I'm saying, throw it away. <laughs> Don't build a shelf. Get rid of that crap. So, Yeah. We all, wow. we all, we all put in, Yeah, we all want to change and improve and yeah. stop being reactionaries. But, yes. Yeah. But we have to appreciate the fact that we do have all these projects. We do. That we grab do. We do. Yeah. So for me, you know, and I've been relatively, I've been much better at it, you know, um, but I put a, um, what's the word, a moratorium on myself Good. of no Facebook or Twitter commenting for a week. And then that week I was able to transform the time, you know, because what happens is you'll put something out or you'll like respond to something, And then all of a sudden you become engaged in this like commentariat, you know, it's like, and then yes. you're not changing anybody's mind. Nobody's changed yours. You know what I mean? Like it's just this time that was wasted. And right. like, you know, like you're trying to make a point for what, you know? So anyways, um, I've recovered some of my time from that. Uh, and I will give myself like parameters of like when I can read the news. So for example, like in the time it takes me to drink my cup of coffee, I can read the news and then that's, you know, like in 20 minutes or I'll give myself the cutoff at 20 minutes and then I have to, you know, hop on to other things. But right. I've noticed if I don't read in the morning, I feel like I have a better, clear channel, uh, for my own things. Like when I read the news in the morning or I read or, you know, my social media stuff in the morning my mind is more clouded and muddled. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to thank you. Thank I can't you. keep you forever because I know you've got lots of projects going on. But thank you. Thank you so much. And again, yeah. I appreciate the book and I will be leaving it at my son's house. We're going there for Thanksgiving. Thank um, you. Because that was the original reason why I got this book was for my son. Aww. But I had to read it first. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my interview with Olivia Tagliaferri and learning about her creative projects that matter. You can find Olivia online at ironcuttercreative.com and you can find me at robinvanauken.com. While you're on my site, download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen free resources for writers and other creatives, so sign up today. Check out the episode and the show notes at robinvanauken.com vanauken.com slash session three. Thank you so much. And if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>